let's uh, bow our heads and pray in preparation for the, the word. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us today. Um, pray that you be with me as I uh, preach. I pray that you help me to um, share what the word of God has to say. Help me to to be true to what the text says and help me to, to remain focused on, on you in it, Lord. I pray that you would be with the folks who are here and help them to um, just hear from you, Lord. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that, that, that your word and, and your spirit would move and, and that folks here would encounter you through, through your Holy Spirit and through uh, the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, a few years ago, I, uh, I was with my brother. Um, we were, I have a younger brother. I, some of y'all may, nope, none of y'all have met him. Um, but, uh, I have a younger brother and I was in, uh, I was in Reno visiting my parents and, and my younger brother and I, uh, we, we decided one day that we would go, uh, on a hike. And as we, we discussed our options as to where to go hiking in Reno, um, there's a, a large hill on the outside of the city. Um, they call it Mount Rose. It is the, uh, I think it's like the highest point in Nevada. Um, and, and he and I, we, we discussed it and we looked at various books and, and had this whole long like consultation about it and decided, well, we're going to leave early in the morning and we'll go and we'll hike up Mount Rose. And when we get to the top, we'll come home and, and that'll be that. And I, I, we didn't take into account how far the hike would be. Uh, we didn't take anything into account. Actually, we looked at a little bit about, well, this hike would be kind of longer, so let's do the short one. And, and the guidebook said the short version was sort of a moderate level of mountaineering skills. Um, I'm sh- sure I have mountaineering skills. I, it doesn't look that hard on, on TV. Um, so, so he and I set out to climb this mountain, and it, it began with us trying to find a parking space in the woods. And then um, trying to figure out how to approach this mountain, um, which is not as easy as you would think. Um, we, we hiked around in the woods at length, found a couple of spots where we could have just hiked right up through what it's called scree. It's just basically loose rocks. You can't hike over it. Like it's, it's you know, you'd get a little ways and slide back down and, you know, be horribly killed. Um, and we, we actually, as we hiked around, we eventually found a path that looked like it was the right way to go. And, and my brother is more experienced. He's a hiker and a camper, and he runs marathons and stuff like that. He's, he's kind of the action hero brother. Um, and and he, uh, he and I are walking. I'm behind him. And he's doing cool things like marking trails so he knows how to get back. And as we're walking along through this tall stuff, this I don't even know what it was. It was green, and it was thick. And, and he stops suddenly, and he starts looking around. And then he, he, he stands there very quietly. And he turns around and he said, we're going to go back to the car right now. And I said, really? I did, you know, aren't we going to climb the mountain? And he's like, well, this, this stuff, I don't remember what he called. He said, this is, this is stuff that grizzly bears like to eat. And he said, and you see that over there? That's where a grizzly bear is scratched up a tree because, because that's what they do, I guess. I don't know. Um, and you see that over there? That's, that's grizzly bear leavings. Um, so we're in the grizzly bear's bathroom. So we're, we're not climbing this mountain this way. Um, and, and we backed up and, and, <laughs> and followed his trail markers, which were very helpful. And we hopped in the car and we drove to the, the hiking path, which was a 20-mile walk there and back. 
um, and, and was not very fun. I do not recommend mountain climbing. It looks majestic and cool. It is not fun. Um, but I, in the years since, I've thought about it, and I've realized, had we continued on the path we were going, we were not going to get to the top of that mountain, right? One of, one of a handful of things were going to happen. Um, one of us, me, was going to run out of gas about halfway up and decide this is not worth doing. One of us, me, was going to fall down and break a bone. That's possibility number two. There's the possibility we would run into a bear, in which case one of us who was slower <laughs> was going to be fed to the bear unless he managed to trip the other one. <laughs> but, but no matter how you slice it, like standing at the bottom of that mountain, we were not going to make it to the top in our given pathway. Like, it was not going to happen. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how bad we wanted it, nothing, right? We were not climbing Mount Rose on the, on the south face or whatever it is. It was not ever, ever going to happen. I, you know, neither of us brought ropes, neither of us brought hammers or, I don't know, whatever else you see on TV. Or it just it wasn't going to happen. There was no climbing to the top of that mountain um, from that direction. I'm starting with this. Um, we're working on Christmas. I don't know if you all noticed, it's December, um, and, and we're working on our, our Christmas series. And what we're talking about in this series is why Christmas is a huge deal it's, and why it's a bigger deal than we usually make of it. I mean, because it's a big deal right now for most folks because we're buying presents, right? And we're making travel plans, and we're planning meals, and we're having to figure out which radio station isn't playing 24-7 Christmas music yet. And we're having to, I mean, like, all of these things that we're doing, um, like, like, it is a big deal. But, like, that stuff is peanuts next to the big deal that it really is, right? I mean, like, to bring my mountaintop analogy, it's a little like the, the plateau on the top of North Road outside of town, which is about 220 feet above where we're at, or something, or 100 feet above where we're at, versus, like, the bear paws, I mean, the stuff that we tend to focus on is nothing compared to the big message of what Christmas is about. And as we dive into this series, like, we're going to talk about, about mountains quite a bit, and I'm going to come back to it, don't worry. Um, but I've got to give you a little background. The series so far, last week we talked about how in Christmas what God does for us is um, God who is abhorrent of sin, like God hates sin, God is unable to be in the presence of sin, comes and lives amongst sinful people, Right? And like, like swims in the mud with us, basically, um, because of his enormous love for us. And as we go forward, this week we're going to talk about how far it is that God travels. Like, like, like the fact that God comes near to us, despite the fact that we are all the way down here and he is all the way up there. Any of y'all ever pray and feel like God could not be further away than he is? Any of y'all go through a really, really rough day and feel like, you know, <laughs> like Job said, and I quote this, Every, like once a month, you could put it on a bingo card. Um, Job cried out to God. He said, God, do you even have eyes? Do you even know what it's like to go through what I'm going through? Because God is, it feels, dis- he feels distant sometimes, doesn't he? And like God comes near on Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. And we're going to kind of dig into this idea a little more today. Um, I got to give you a little bit of Bible translation understanding here. Um, when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament that we read is translated from, anybody know? Hebrew, right? 
Um, we are very lucky in that respect that we have all sorts of ancient manuscripts that give us this Hebrew translation. The guys in the New Testament, when they read the Old Testament, they didn't read it in English, right? They read it in Greek, which was translated from Hebrew, right? And that translation is called the LXX or the Septuagint or whatever. It was done about three or four hundred years before Jesus was born. And most of the New Testament is quoted from that Greek, New Test- or that Greek Old Testament, right? Because that's just the language they read it in. Um, and we're going to come back around to that for one word. And I know sometimes I spend a lot of time on one word, but I'm, I'm going to a little bit. But there's a weird thing that happens with the translation there, and, and it's going to make sense in a bit. We'll get to it, okay? Um, finally, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 7. Isaiah is in the Old Testament, and here's the historical context, okay? Israel, or Judah... It's not Israel anymore. Israel and Judah have split. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Got it? Um, they don't get along. They hate each other. They usually fight wars against each other. They, you know, kill each other's, you know, um, citizens. They raid each other's farms. They are not friends. At this point in history, um, superpowers have begun to develop, like the technology of superpowers, and not like superpowers as in flying people but as in really strong countries that take over their neighbors. Got it? And at the time, the superpower was the Assyrians. And these guys were scary. Um, it, it Actually, very interesting, but very scary. They would hunt lions for fun. Like, and they have all kinds of literature about lion hunting. They were nasty to prisoners of people that they conquered. They were, I mean, they were just bad dudes, right? These are tough guys. And so the Assyrians are the superpower at the time, and they begin to conquer the world. And the folks in the Middle East here, specifically Syria and Israel, which is the northern part of the kingdom, they come to Judah, and they say, guys, Assyria is going to come and conquer us. You all need to partner up with us and fight them. And the Judeans historically have said, whatever you do, we'll do the opposite. We are not on your team. Got it? Um, And so there's sort of this political thing that's happening, and Isaiah kind of enters the picture. And Isaiah, now check this out. Isaiah has, this is the beginning of the book. Um, It's a few years after Isaiah had become a prophet, because um, like Isaiah becomes a prophet in the year that King Isaiah dies. He actually sees God in the temple, and God says, well, who am I going to send to speak for my people? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me, right? We all sing that song about it. You know what I'm talking about? That's in the year that King Isaiah died. The very next chapter, that story ends. The very next chapter, God finally gets around to sending Isaiah, right? Um, and it's not the next day. Um, it starts with, all right, so 7-1. Oh, actually, it's on the, I can put it on the screen. Look at that. Now it came in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah. So if the king died... His son is king, and then his son comes into power, right? And so we've got like where where Isaiah comes to talk to this brand new king who's continuing his policy of not cooperating with Israel for any reason, which is good because God doesn't want them to do that. I mean, like that um, is actually what ends up sending the uh, people of Israel or of Judah into exile. Um, Now, it came in the days of King Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So Isaiah gives us a forewarning here. There's a battle that's about to start, 
and these guys are going to lose, right? Like Syria, who is, by the way, I'm giving you modern versions here, Syria and Israel are not going to win this war. But they're gathering strength to fight because their thinking is, if we conquer Israel, we'll kill their king and install a king who will cooperate with us, right? I mean, it's a, it's a fairly convincing foreign policy. And so they gather up to have this fight, and it does not go well for Judah. Judah loses, I was reading the statistics, they lost two big battles right away, and 125,000 Judean soldiers were captured or killed right out of the gate. Like, that is, I mean, ancient world, that is a chunk of men, right? Like, that's an entire army. And so Judah is in huge trouble. They are, like, on the edge of getting destroyed. Um, So, when it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart... His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. So it comes to to the king, hey, the army's coming. The enemy is on the way. They are going to be here shortly. We are all going to die, right? And like everybody in the city is suddenly terrified, right? Because they haven't got an army anymore. They're not going to be able to fight. They're not going to win this fight. They are in trouble. Now, a little background. What we know about Ahaz is he was not a very good king. Got it? Ahaz barely followed God. He was much more interested in pagan idols. And he worshipped a lot of the pagan idols, and he worshipped a lot of the pagan gods and made sacrifices to them and was, was kind of perpetually in trouble with God. Um, and these guys are afraid because, well, because they're about to get killed. Um, so this is 3 to 6 if you're following, Isaiah 7, 3 to 6. Um, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with Christmas? We'll get there, Okay. It, it, it fits. It also fits with mountains. Trust me. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz. So Isaiah is told by God, go talk to the king with your son, Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, now we're going to hit pause there. That is super specific, right? It says, go talk to the king and do it right there. Now, If you sit down with a map and a topographical map, what you'll figure out really quickly is that Israel or Jerusalem itself, the city, is in an amazing location. It's got cliffs on one side, which make it really hard to attack, right? Like if you're going to charge into an enemy city up a cliff, not what you want to do, right? You'd be like my brother and I trying to climb the mountain. You'd hit the wall and bears would eat you or something. It would be bad. So these guys are not going to attack from the one side. From the south, they have a valley that's not big enough to host an army. To the north, they have a location where the army, like every army that ever fought against Jerusalem, like camped. And coincidentally, this is where Isaiah meets the king. So he meets him and talks to him overlooking a valley that in a very short amount of time, like a few weeks, is going to be full of an enemy army. Right? Um, Because God is all about the drama. And this is a dramatic moment. He says, so meet him there and, he, and, and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smolding firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah, because Aram and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up a son of Tabal to be king 
in the midst of it. So now, there's a lot of words. Let's unpack this real quick, okay? Um, Isaiah comes to the king and he says, hey, don't be afraid of these guys. They're like smoldering wicks, right? Like our stumps. Now, um, I, how to explain this well? A uh, smoldering stump is, is an insult. Got it? It is, it is a fire that's not going to grow very big. We don't have many trees in Montana, but you're, so you're going to have to imagine, um, like a fence post, the state tree, uh, a, a fence post on fire after it's at the very bottom, right? It ain't spreading. That is not a fire that's going to get bigger. Like, there is nothing left to burn. There is no great flame coming. He says, don't be afraid of these guys. They're burned out already. They used all their fuel. They got nothing to use against you. And so they're there, and they have this, this, this enemy. says, hey, they're like smoldering stumps. Don't be afraid. Yes, they've planned evil against you. Yes, they've killed a lot of your soldiers, but they are not, they are not going to win. They are not going to conquer you. They're not going to be, like, successful. Even though they made all of this plan and they got this evil, like, idea and everything else, don't be afraid. Now, if you're in King Ahaz's spot, this is a leap of faith, right? This is, there's nothing standing between the enemy and us but the wall. Because our army has already been beaten. We got nothing to beat them with. Nothing. They are going to come and kill him. And at this point in time, having not trusted God up until this point... Isaiah strolls in and says, hey, time to pay attention. Time to trust God. Time to not be afraid. I'm guessing Ahaz was relatively secure in his courage, and I'm guessing he's quite the opposite now, which is funny. I don't know why it is. God has this habit of asking us to trust him when it counts. You know what I mean? It is really hard to trust God when everything is going the wrong way. It's really hard to trust God, like when you get the diagnosis for cancer, right? I mean, before that diagnosis shows up, man, that's an easy trust. It is easy to trust God when, you know, when the bills are paid. It is easy to trust God when, you know, everything is growing the way it's supposed to. It is easy to trust God when there are times when it's just easy to trust God. There are times when it's difficult. This is the difficult time. And God shows up or sends his prophet and says, trust me right now when it's hard, um, If there's a side lesson to pick up here, by the way, that's worth picking up. Everybody with me? Like, trusting God when it's easy is one thing. Trusting God when it counts is huge. Um, Thus says the Lord. Now, here comes the formal prophecy, and this is usually written in a poem. I packed it together. I'm sorry, because it's... Anyway. Um, Thus says the Lord. um, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Meaning, it ain't going to happen. These guys ain't going to beat you. They have their plan. It's going to fail. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it no longer has a people. So there is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. Excuse me. If you will not believe, you will surely not last. Now, Kind of, uh, I have a little note here. I like to summarize that. Uh, uh, another way to translate this would be, it, meaning Syria, will not stand. Meaning Syria isn't going to exist shortly. It will not exist, even though Damascus is the head and is the most important city of Aram, Syria, and powerful resin is the head of the most important person, the king of Damascus. Instead, the plan of God will be accomplished. What Isaiah is saying is, all of these guys look tough. 
All of them look awesome. All of them look unbeatable. But guess what? Next to God, they're ants, right? Next to God, like, like people are important based on whether or not God decides they're important. And these conquerors not going to conquer. They're not going to succeed. They're going to fail in their effort. And actually, I'll tell you, what's going to happen is they're going to try to sack Jerusalem, and it's going to fail. They're not going to manage to take the city. And then the Assyrians are going to show up, and they're going to conquer both Syria and Israel, and they're going to take the entire population away as slaves. And, like, they're going to leave the entire area empty. Um, because the, the, the third bad guy they're trying to fight against um, is going to show up and he's going to take care of the business that, that God is sending him to take care of. He's going to punish these nations on his behalf. Like, this is happening. And there's nothing they're going to be able to do to stop it. The last line there is huge. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. Meaning, trust me or you're going to go with them. Right? Lean on me or you're in trouble. Now, there's a subtext you all ain't picking up on. Most folks, some of you all probably are. I don't mean to be demeaning. I, mean, I didn't pick up on it the first, like, 30 times I read it until I started researching it. There's a whole subtext here where in the Old Testament, God promised David. David was, like, the second king of Israel. He was the, like, best king that Israel ever had, even though he wasn't perfect. Um, God made a promise to, to David, and that promise is called the Davidic Covenant. It's a huge deal if you study Old Testament stuff. Um, but real quick, the line that matters here is um, God's making him all these promises, all these promises, all these promises, and he ends with, and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with the vision Nathan spoke to David. So what he promises David is, hey, one of your kids will always be king here, right? There will always be a king from your line. One of your great-great-grandkids will be a king in Israel forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, Ahaz is one of David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and he's there, and he's saying, Hey, if I get conquered, what about God's promise? If I get killed, what about God's promise? And this ending line fits in with that, right? The ending line is, if you don't trust me, you will not stay on the throne, and you will not survive this. Now, does that mean that God is taking back his promise? Well, no, not really. To Ahaz, maybe. Actually, Ahaz survives it, just like God said. Um, Ahaz's like grandchild won't, because it's going to be a day in the future where they, you know, the prophet comes and says, "Hey, hey, hey, get right with God," and you say, "Well, forget you, get out of here," and they're going to get run over and taken away as captives, and they're all going to disappear, um, and that's the exile, which is a whole other conversation. Ironically enough, the son that is standing with um, Isaiah in this conversation, he's named. The remnant will return, meaning the guys who get kicked out of the country will come back one day. But it's an aside. Um, so they're here. He makes this promise. He says, hey, as long as you trust me, you'll stand. As long as you lean on me, you'll stand. Believe, have faith, and you will last. If you don't, you will not. Then the Lord again said to Ahaz, saying, and here's where this gets real exciting. As a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, make it deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. And he says, hey, ask for a sign. I know you don't trust me. Ask for a sign. This is a really weird thing. You never see God do this otherwise. He says, just 
ask me for anything and I will prove it to you and you'll see the sign and you'll know to trust me, right? Just ask for a sign. This is huge. And God is actually serving something up to him on a silver platter. Ahaz, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Because Ahaz is a crummy Jew. Not like that all Jewish people are crummy. He's bad at being Jewish, right? Um, He is bad at being Jewish. And he looks and he says, like, the one rule I know is you don't test God and you don't ask for signs. And so, like, he's worshiping other gods. Like... (laughs) He's, you know, like breaking every other rule God has. But this one, he says, nope, I'm not asking for a sign, even though you told me to. And God gets angry. And every once in a while, you see God say something really funny in the Old Testament. And this is one of those lines. He's, then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well? He says, wait a minute. Did you get bored messing with the people around you that you're going to mess with me? Did you get tired of, like, ticking off your neighbors that it's time to make God really angry? So I told you to ask for a sign. And then God takes a step past. And this is where it gets tricky. And this is the meat of the issue. And we've gone a long way to get there, right? But it matters. Watch this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So God says, you know what? you're going to just make me angry enough, I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. By the way, anybody know what Emmanuel means? God is with us, right? Because we know this passage. Um, Now, there is some conflict about one word in here, right? Um, The word is virgin. The Old Testament... The word used there can mean virgin, it can mean maiden, it can mean a young lady, it can mean a lot of things, right? It is translated as virgin because the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was written by guys who spoke this language, said virgin. And then Jesus' followers, who were also guys who spoke this language, say it was virgin. There are some modern scholars who've come along and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't say virgin, it says young lady. It could mean virgin, but it means young lady. And therefore, the Bible never says there'll be a virgin birth. But that's not true. Got it? Um, Because what we get, the best way to understand a translation is to look at how people who speak the language understood it, right? And these guys understood it to mean virgin. Now, we don't know who he's talking about. There are a couple of possibilities. Um, It could refer to a young lady that Ahaz knows, right, who is currently a virgin, who by the time everything comes down will have a child. If that's the case, it's one of these instances in the Old Testament where a prophecy has two fulfillments, Right where it happens once and then it happens again later. And there are a bunch of examples of that. Um, That's one possibility. It's also possible that, like, no young lady that Ahaz knows, because it doesn't say your wife, it doesn't say this young lady, it doesn't say this member of your harem, it doesn't say any of that. It says a virgin will be with child, Um, which is a pretty broad suggestion, right? I'm guessing if you wait a year, like, there are lots of folks we know who are not married will get married and will have a baby. Right? Could happen. Um, It's implied from the lines that follow that this is somebody who will be in the line of David. Because he goes on, he says, he will eat curds and honey at the time, 
at the time and he will at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good for the best or excuse me for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good the land will be whose two kings you dread will be forsaken he actually goes on i didn't include the whole quote i'm sorry i'm slacking um he goes on to talk about this young man bringing prosperity and all this other stuff okay and so like the implication is that this guy is going to be king one day right and so it's possible he's referring to a successor, but it is also possible that this just doesn't happen in Isaiah's time, right? That Ahaz is like, well, what are you talking about? Because what Isaiah does is, like what this prophecy is about, it's about Jesus, right? He jumps all the way forward and says, here's your sign. Virgin will be born. Like, we'll have a child. The virgin will be with child. And you'll call him Emmanuel. God is with us. And you'll eat um, honey and curds. By the way, what that refers to is nomadic living. There are other places in the Old Testament where it refers to like living with a lot of money. In this case, like if you look at the context and how the ancient Jews understood it, this is talking about being nomadic um, and not knowing about good or like before he knew good and evil, the foreign kings will be destroyed. Like, like what he's saying here is, hey, your enemies will be gone by the time this happens. Um, before he's an adult, these guys will be gone. And it did happen. Like, the enemy ended up vanquished. We don't have any further information on whether or not a young woman that Ahaz knew had a child by him. We don't know any of that stuff. What we do know is what Matthew tells us. This is Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She, is, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins." Excuse me. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall come or shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Um, and Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, what do we do with this? Um, I've given you a whole lot of background on a prophecy, a line in the Old Testament, right? And it was God promising this guy who has no trust, who has no faith, who has no depth, who has no nothing, this guy who is rebelling against God constantly and sort of living in the dirt, everything else, and the prophet comes to him and says, hey, don't worry. God's going to save you, and here's your sign. God is going to do it himself. He's going to give you a miracle yourself. You don't have to go out and do any work. It is going to be provided for you. And God knew what he was going to do already. God knew that this was the time he was going to unfold this prophecy. And it ends up being this, God is with you. Um, I was reading, I'm reading a book right now. This is uh, by David Platt. It's called Radical. And... Uh, He's talking about doing foreign missions in this chapter. And he says, I remember sitting outside a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they performed their religious rituals. 
Meanwhile, I was engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in this particular community. They were discussing how all religions are fundamentally the same the only superficial, they, and only superficially different. We may have different views about small issues, one of them said, but when it comes down to essential issues, each of our religions is the same. I listened for a while, and then, asked, and then they asked me what I thought. And I said, it sounds as though you both picture God, or whatever you call God, at the top of a mountain. It seems as if you believe we are all at the bottom of the mountain, and I may take one route up the mountain and you may take another, but in the end, we all end up in the same place. They smiled as I spoke. Happily, they replied, exactly, you understand. Then I leaned in and said, now let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where we are? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way to him, but instead comes to us? They thought for a moment and then responded that that would be great. I replied, let me introduce you to Jesus. Um, we live in a, in a culture, in a world that likes the idea of boxing everything together, Right? It doesn't matter if I'm a Christian because it's the same as these guys. It's the same as that guy. It's the same as this faith. It's the same as that faith. And we're all climbing up to the same God. Because one thing we sort of agree on as a people is God is not near us. This world is broken, right? People get sick and die. People do horrible things. We struggle with sin and sometimes we don't succeed, right? I mean, like, like this world is not the way it was meant to be. And like, like this idea, oh, we just have to climb and try and everything else... But what makes Christmas amazing is that God does the opposite on our behalf. We cannot climb up to him. Like my brother and I trying to climb the mountain, right? We were going to get lost on the way. We were going to get eaten by a bear on the way, or at least I was. Um, we were not going to accomplish the goal we had set out to accomplish because, because as people, we cannot climb that mountain. Like you and I, we cannot climb up to God. You cannot reach him. You cannot be good enough. You cannot earn it. You cannot anything. Um, Ahaz was in a spot where Ahaz was going to die. And God said, don't worry, I'll deliver you. And when I deliver you, you look and you say, God is with us. We celebrate Christmas. Christmas is so much bigger than the silly stuff we get distracted by because God is with us. Because God steps out of the mountain stands in our presence, and in the midst of insurmountable odds, we meet him. Like, there's so much working against us. Like, the world is broken. We fail. We get angry. We resent. We get revenge. We sin. We, everything. I mean, like, we are stuck in this place, and God steps over that mess to come to us. That is worth celebrating. Because in our lives, like the reality is, this is the gospel, right? Like, like the reality is on our own, there are armies out there ready to overtake us, right? One day all of us will die. I mean, the mortality rate is currently 100%. Um, like, it is going to happen. We all sin. We all live in this place where we can't see God because we're blinded by our own, like, flesh. But God comes to us on our behalf, and that is amazing. He comes down the mountain. 
We don't have to be afraid of enemy armies or bears or anything else. God rescues us. That is the amazing thing about Christmas. The amazing thing that we celebrate is God steps off the mountain and into our lives. And ultimately, ultimately, if we follow him, if we become his people, he steps into our hearts and we can live as close to him as possible. Like the original purpose of the creation was for us to know and be in relationship with God, and that is it. Um, And to illustrate this, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, like as he was about to go to the cross and die for our sins, as he was about to carry the weight of the world, um, he gathered his people up. And and let me call up my guys who are going to serve communion today. Um, He called his, his guys, and he said to them, took his bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his people, and he said, who's going to the nursery? Take this, this is my body, um, broken for you. And what he's talking about there is that we, when we follow Jesus, we draw so close to him. He is so in our presence that, that like, we literally consume him in our lives. Like, we take him into our very, like, center, our innermost being. Like, everything that we are, like, feeds on who Jesus is. And so as we take the bread this morning, remember, Jesus' body was broken for you. His His flesh was broken so that we could be in God's presence because we could never climb the mountain to him. He came to us.